Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, the Ministry of Defence admits mistakes were made after reports of a recruitment drive favouring women and ethnic minorities. We hear from a former female RAF fighter pilot who says women bring a different perspective to the work environment. Because ultimately, by having diverse teams, we are going to see different behaviours coming out. And as I was on my squadron, I did see behaviours change really from very alpha male and perhaps, you know, quite testosterone filled when I first joined in a three year period, actually that did transition. And I did notice that people started talking in a different way. Perhaps, you know, we started to stop swearing as much. And a legal expert helps us understand what is and isn't acceptable when you're trying to reach diversity targets. The law is quite clear. You're allowed to do something called positive action, but you're not allowed to Uh, take positive discrimination. Those sound similar, don't they? But in fact, they're very different. Also, the untold stories of Colditz behind the stirring tales of escape. But it's also a story about class, about race, about sexuality, about mental health. The RAF have admitted for the first time this week that mistakes were made after reports of a recruitment drive which favoured women and ethnic minorities. It's believed to be part of RAF efforts to hit demanding diversity targets by 2030. We'll look at that challenge in more detail in a moment. But first, the story really hit the headlines and made claims last month that white men were being disadvantaged as a result of pressures to meet those targets. It prompted the Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Mike Wigston, to insist there was no discrimination against any group. No standards were dropped. Our reporter, Rosie Layden, has been looking into this and joins me now. Rosie, what can you tell us? Well, back in August, claims were made the RAF's head of recruiting and selection refused to follow an order to prioritise women and ethnic minority candidates over white men because she believed it was unlawful. Apparently, the group captain, who's not been named, told her boss she wasn't willing to allocate slots on training courses based purely on a specific gender or ethnicity, and she resigned. And this is according to a leaked message obtained by Sky News. It's thought to be driven by RAF ambitions to have 40 percent female recruits by 2030, targets which some describe as impossible. And what's been the response? Well, it's caused a lot of controversy, with some critics accusing the Ministry of Defence of an obsession with diversity and failing to prioritise operational effectiveness. The RAF has refuted this with an initial and immediate staunch defence of its policy. Air Vice Marshal Maria Byford, that's the service's chief of staff with responsibility for personnel, told The Times she had slowed the recruitment process for all candidates after figures showed the Air Force wasn't hitting these diversity targets. She told the paper, I want the best people and if I can include more women and more people from different backgrounds in that, I think I have a better service in the long run. We are unashamed about doing that. Well then, following a meeting of the RAF main board earlier this month, the chief of the air staff conceded they'd explored a recruiting practice to improve diversity, but it had been challenged and never implemented. Sir Mike Wigston added that a non-statutory inquiry would be launched into the circumstances surrounding the resignation of the head of recruiting and selection. And now, uh, Rosie, the latest twist, and admission mistakes were made. Yes, yes. The the MOD released a fresh statement at the start of this week, and as you say, they've now acknowledged they made mistakes. It reads, 
while overall standards did not drop, in hindsight we accept that despite the best of intentions, some mistakes were made. The RF is now confident that our approach is correct. However, we're investigating some processes and decisions taken in the past. And there's no detail in this statement about what these processes and decisions were. But I understand the service are committed to investigating any suggestion they fail to meet their legal obligations. And Rosie, this whole debate comes at a time when all three services are pushing hard to increase diversity in the ranks. Absolutely. The Ministry of Defence wants the ratio of women joining the armed forces to rise from just under 12%, where it is at the moment, to 30% by 2030. The RAF has this even higher target, wanting, as we said, the number of female recruits to hit 40% by the same year. And the RAF target for ethnic minorities is to reach 20% of all Air Force recruits by the end of the decade, and that's up from about 10%. On a positive note, the RAF is doing significantly better than the other two services on diversity, with around 15% of their ranks already filled by women, and that's compared to just 10% of the Army and the Royal Navy. Rosie Layden, thanks very much. Well, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark joins us as always. Uh, Michael, how achievable are those targets set both by the MOD and the RAF? Uh, very difficult to see how they will be achieved in the timescales. I mean, as uh, Rosie said, the you know, the, the RAF is doing better than the other services um, with about 15%. Uh, the armed forces as a whole are still just under 13%, and that's crawled up from 8%. So to get to, in the RAF's case, 30%, uh, sorry, 40%, by the end of this decade seems almost impossible, to be honest. And the armed forces as a whole, to get to 30% by the end of this decade, I think would be a stretch. Um, and it's it's not clear how they how they can do this, other than just by advertising the way the service is. And the RAF has got a better story to tell than the other two services in terms of what they can offer in the sorts of jobs that women might want to do. A um, bigger range of technical jobs and a, a lower... Um, uh, not a lower physical requirement, but but less frontline combat for more people in the RAF. So there's more um, more background work that may attract people to it for the sheer expertise involved, rather than anything macho about it. Um, so the RAF does have some, uh, I think, some advantages. But I would be very surprised and pleased for them if they could get anywhere near this target in the next eight years. Well, the whole controversy has raised some important issues about how to increase equality and diversity in recruitment and where the law lies as employers strive to do this. Let's speak now to legal commentator Joshua Rosenberg. Uh, Joshua, good to speak to you. What Hi. legally can you and can't you do when you're trying to reach the kind of diversity targets set for the RAF and other services? The law is quite clear. You're allowed to do something called positive action, but you're not allowed to... Uh, take positive discrimination. Those sound similar, don't they? But in fact, they're very different. So how are they different? Just explain. Well, the Equality Act, Section 159 of the Equality Act 2010, uh, explains what positive action is. It, it helps people with what are called protected characteristics, race or sex, for example, to overcome a disadvantage that all women or all black people might suffer. So if the RAF reasonably thinks that participation by women in the Air Force is disproportionately low, then uh, they can be treated more favorably than men in recruitment or promotion. But there are three important conditions. The first is that the woman applying for a job or for promotion must be as qualified as a man. So you're not allowed to appoint 
a female applicant who is less well qualified than a male applicant, that would be positive discrimination, and that's against the law. The second condition is that you can't have an automatic policy of treating women more favorably than men. Each case must be judged on its merits. You can't have quotas or reserved places. And, and the third condition is that positive action of this sort is a proportionate way of enabling or encouraging women or other minorities to join the service. Perhaps then the grey area is in how you judge whether someone is equally qualified. Yes, indeed. And uh, if you have two candidates and you can't tell them apart, well, then uh, there's a tiebreaker which enables you to appoint the woman because, after all, the woman is as qualified as the man. It is difficult, but on the other hand, uh, women and men uh, in many cases do the same job in the services, and therefore it should be possible to see whether somebody has the experience and the abilities and whatever the skills are for that particular job. But yes, somebody has to judge, uh, and you know the law's not going to uh, uh, ball you out if you uh, make a minor mistake, but if your policy is to have a quota to reserve places for women or for minorities, then you may be in trouble. Joshua Rosenberg there. Well, Michael Clark, and when you're looking at efforts to improve diversity in recruitment, are, are there any particular challenges that the armed forces face, which are particular to them when you compare them to a regular company? Oh, yes. I mean, there's the image of the armed forces that it's all about fighting, whereas those of us who are in the business of analysing it know that it isn't, although that's ultimately the, the sharp end of what the armed forces do. But there's a general image of the armed forces. And there's an image that they are a, a very restrictive lifestyle uh, in which you can't really be yourself. And again, those of us who know the armed forces know that isn't true, um, but that is a, a public image. And then all three of the armed forces have different um, problems in this respect. So for the army, um, which has more people on the front line in combat or likely to be in combat, um, you've got that, that issue then of, of uh, women's fitness or strength, sheer strength, um, if you're right on the front line, not, not a danger issue, but just a, an ability to perform with you know heavy kit and all the rest of it. In the Navy, the issue on ships, of course, is this very pressurized environment on a ship that, that brings its own problems, which they don't have in the army. You, 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 on a ship, you simply can't get away from each other. You have to have your own um, spaces, your own female mess and male mess and so on. And that can be you know, something that has to be managed. In the Air Force, not much of the Air Force is involved in the front line. That, that, that which is, is extremely important. But the Air Force carries a very long technocratic tail to do its job. And that makes the Air Force, in some ways, uh, an easier environment where you can have this, this, I think everybody would say, just more mature. You know, both men and women all both behave in a more mature way in a mixed environment. And, you know, I've lived through that in the defense analysis business. I was, you know, running Rusi, I used to sit around in meetings and we usually had more women around the table than men. And it, it wasn't that, that, that men behaved themselves more when women were there. It was that men and women both behaved mm. in a more business-like, mature way in a mixed environment. And I think that's what the armed forces have got to uh, bottom out, as it were. That's what they've got to understand and mm. present to the outside world that this is actually a very good uh, career path to choose in which you will get lots of the things that you want in a grown-up environment, not in a macho-fueled um, uh, environment that looks like something out of a Hollywood film. 
But let's talk now to Jean-Claude Hedwin, who after 10 years in the army is now company director at Exmill Recruitment, and Mandy Hickson, a former tornado pilot who spent 17 years in the RAF and has since written a book about her career and is a motivational speaker. Welcome to both of you. Mandy, you joined the RAF quite some time ago in 1994, but I think it's interesting in this context to look at the historical role that the RAF had in diversity and employing women. What was it like when you joined and how difficult was it in the path that you took? Um, hi, Kate. Well, it was a very different world and I always have to put that caveat on it. So when you think back to the early 1990s, culturally, we were in a very different place to what we are, where we are now. It was tough to get in and they'd only just started recruiting females as pilots and then as fast jet pilots. And so we were very much coming into an untested territory, should we say, because, you know, when you're literally opening the doors to women for the first time, things are going to take a while to settle down. There are also going to be certain teething problems, things like flying kit, um, stuff like that. And so, yeah, it was going to be challenging, to say the least. And the RAF clearly has high ambitions about recruiting more women and more people from ethnic minorities. And they are, it seems, to be having success in reaching the targets. How do you get it right, though, rebalancing the makeup of the Royal Air Force to make it inclusive without making some people feel excluded? Well, I think that's the question they've been struggling with. Exactly that question, isn't it, Kate? So basically, if you think that we have had you know, women in the Air Force for a while, but we've had females as frontline fast jet pilots for 30 years, and yet we've still got very, very few women on the actual front line. And so it's very easy, I think, when we look at the press, everything that's around at the moment, the RAF have made some mistakes. I, I do believe that. But at the same time, they are trying to do something different. And I think this is the whole crux of it. Whatever they have been doing in the past has not been working. And I, I know that, you know, Air Chief Marshal Wigston has been really looking at perhaps trying to redress that balance and just trying to work out how do we increase the numbers of ethnic minorities and of women within the forces. And how do you do it? So I think what you need to be looking at is really the outcomes that we're after. We're wanting high performance, highly capable, a better pool of people. And therefore, we need better marketing to basically ensure that we recruit the right people. Jean-Claude Hedwin, you're in the business of getting jobs for ex-service personnel. Do you think the armed forces should be more diverse? And if so, how should they go about it? I do believe the armed forces should be a fairly diverse organisation. It should reflect what the current population of the United Kingdom is. But they've got to try and make it, instead of turning around and saying, we only want these people, the way they're going to have to try and do it is try to make, try and target those those cultures, those groups, to try and make them interested in joining the military. A lot of the people feel that the military is white male, and that's it. You've got to be white male to get in there. But they have to change, they have to try and change that narrative and to try and advertise in ways and means that will attract those sort of people. And John Claude, if you take the attitude that you get the right, the best qualified person for the job, how on earth do you assess that? Because it goes far beyond beyond what's on paper. It can be about background, it can be like life experience and so many factors, can't it? it yes, there is no easy way, there's no right way, there's no wrong way of doing this. Um for my, for my clients, when they're assessing individuals to join their organisations, they go through two, maybe three rounds of interview process. And I stick my hand up. I don't get it right 100% of the time. Um, so there is a lot of hit and miss. But within, within, say, like the RAF trying to get pilots, if they make the wrong decision, that's going to cost hundreds of thousands of pounds because that's how much it costs to train an RAF pilot. 
I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether there's a right answer or a wrong answer, I'm afraid. Mandy, can you ever say that someone is better placed for recruitment to the RAF because of their gender? I mean, did you, for example, bring added value to your role because you're a woman, perhaps because you had to strive harder to get where you were and have more determination? Yeah, so I think that's a it's, a it's a very difficult question. I would say I was a very average pilot. I mean, I did really right. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd say because I think actually a lot of pilots really they do take the ego out of it. I think we've got away from this Top Gun esque society that we sort of saw in the the nineteen eighties. And yeah, you can be flying a fast jet on the front line, but I would still say I was you know pretty much right in the middle of our abilities within that. But what I did bring was a completely different perspective. Perce- perspective sorry because ultimately by having diverse teams we are going to see different behaviors coming out and as I was on my squadron I did see behaviors change really from very alpha male and perhaps you know quite testosterone filled when I first joined in a three-year period actually that did transition and I did notice that people started talking in a different way perhaps you know, we started to stop swearing as much, you know, actually people started being a little bit more thoughtful about how they were behaving. And I think that's really, really important. So when you do look at, you know, and you said very rightly there, Jean-Claude, it's really important we try to represent what is going on in society. But can we do that in the military? You know, ultimately, you need people who are fit for the job as well. And so there is that. So you've got to be taking people with 2020 vision, you know, all of these good things. So actually, are we going to be representative society? Probably not. But I do think we need to still actually strive to achieve, achieve some sort of semblance of the targets that they're actually aiming towards. Jean-Claude, the RF says it's introduced a new IT system to recruit and improve diversity. We don't know exactly what that is, but let's just talk about the benefits of IT and blind recruiting. Can that help with diversity? It can help with the diversity to a certain extent, in so much that if you have a blind system and and everybody's a number, uh, so you can't tell whether they're male, female, or where they come from, and everybody's just a simple number and everything's done on um, what they can see and what they can read, yes, that will help. Uh, Mandy, you joined the RAF in 1994, as I said, but you had 70 years service as a regular and then a further eight as a reservist. How much better do you think the RAF and indeed the armed forces have got in that time? I think it's a completely different place, to be honest, Kate. Um, You know, I talked to my friends that are in now. um, So Soraya Marshall is was one of my colleagues, one of my great friends that I joined the Air Force with. Uh, She's now an Air Vice Marshal and the highest ranking uh, female air crew in the Air Force. And I think, you know, when I talk to her about what's happening, she describes a very, very different environment, a different situation. And I think just culturally, we are so much more representative of what we're seeing out in society as well. So I can see, therefore, why they're still they're still driving, though, to push those numbers up. Mandy Hickson, since leaving, you've written about you, your career, you're a motivational speaker, and you've been a flying instructor to cadets. How much interest have you got from young women and indeed minority groups to join the RAF? Yeah, I, I, it's been fantastic, actually. I think when I was doing my um, time serving as a volunteer reservist, flying air cadets as an air experience pilot, um, I was definitely seeing more girls coming through and much, and many more ethnic minorities as well, which is really great because I just think 
if you can instill those values and that passion for flying at a very early stage, then you're also going to start to increase that passion just for aviation as a whole and the military. And yeah, definitely over the eight years I was flying, I would fly regularly way more girls uh, progressively through. And I just think um, when I look at, you know, air cadets now, I go and, and do speeches for air cadets. I'm seeing way more girls actually as well in there as well, which is brilliant. Now, a lot of us think we know the story of the Nazi prisoner of war camp Kolditz, a bleak Gothic castle on a German hillside and the scene of many brave escape attempts depicted in a number of books and films. But a new book reveals details about life in the castle that sheds a fresh light on how the prisoners of war lived there and the role issues like class and race played. I spoke to its author, Ben McIntyre, and asked why he felt compelled to write Kolditz, Prisoners of the Castle. There are, in fact, I think something like 70 books written about Kolditz, but none for 20 years. And in a funny way, almost all the books written about Kolditz in the past tell the same story. And it's the story of a white upper middle class man with a moustache digging his way out of Kolditz. And of course, that is a central part of the myth of Kolditz. It's absolutely central to it, but it's not the whole story. The, the real story of Kolditz is really... If, I mean, the escaping is absolutely central to it, but it's also a story about class, about race, about sexuality, about mental health. It's actually a story that's much closer in a way to the sort of subjects that we're interested in today. And, and those sort of elements of the story have been rather excluded in the past because they didn't fit into the sort of mould that we'd come to expect from Colditz. So is it a question that the information was always there, but it was kind of overlooked? And if so, where, where did you get your information from? Well, I think it's partly that it was overlooked. I mean, particularly in, the, in terms of the racial stories and, and the sexual stories that come out of Colditz, they, they just didn't want them to be told. They, they, they were not part of the kind of the accepted uh, account. A lot of the new information comes from the Imperial War Museum because in a brilliant stroke in the 1980s, the Imperial War Museum began inviting survivors from Colditz to tell their stories. And there's an astonishing sound archive at the Imperial War Museum. And by that point, of course, many of these inmates felt freer to talk about what had happened than they had before. So, you know, these were men in their 70s, 80s, even older in some cases. And they were happy at this point now to start talking about things like sex and race and class and so on in a much more open way. So it's not just that this material was hidden. It didn't really emerge until quite a lot later. Yeah. And the class system. Tell us a bit more about that and how it existed inside the camp. Well, I was stunned to discover this. It was an officer's camp, Colditz. It was specifically set up by the Germans to contain officers, allied officers, British, French, Dutch, Poles, who tried to escape from other camps. But under the Geneva Convention, and I didn't know this until I started uh, researching it, those officers had the right to servants. And so there was a social chasm running right the way through the middle of Colditz, which was those officers, those British officers, had British POWs, ordinary soldiers, privates, orderlies they were known as, to, to, to serve them, to make their food, to polish their shoes, to make their beds. And those ordinary soldiers, the orderlies, were not allowed to escape. I mean, so there was a, there, a I mean, the class divisions that you would, that one knows about from outside the castle mm -hmm. were sort of transferred diametrically into the castle. And it's fascinating. So you've got at the one end, you've got these orderlies who were not allowed to escape. At the other end, you had a group called the Prominente, who were aristocrats. They were people who were related to Churchill. There were two nephews of the king. These, if you like, were the elite of Colditz. 
Um, and they lived in the completely the other end of the spectrum, really. They had better food, they had music, and they too were not allowed to escape because they were under 24-hour guard because they were really hostages. They were held there as kind of bargaining chips. And believe it or not, even within the Prominenti, there was a, there was a Bullingdon club. Uh, we all now know what the Bullingdon club stands for. It's this sort of uh, elite um, uh, sort of rather philistine dining club from Oxford. Well, to be in the Colditz Bullingdon Club, you had to have been in the Bullingdon Club. It's incredible. And you talk about these things coming as a surprise to you. Were there any other things you uncovered that were flat, basically flew in the face of received wisdom? Oh, uh, many, actually. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about sexuality. There was a considerable amount of homosexuality in Colditz, as you would expect. I mean, these men were locked up for five years. Um, but again, it's been sort of completely covered up. The one that really astonished me, and it's an amazing story, is the only non-white officer in the British contingent was an Indian called um, Birendranath Mazumdar. And he was really badly treated in Colditz, not really by the Germans, who were in the way quite polite to him, by the Brits. I mean, he suffered terrible racial prejudice. He was told he was not allowed to try to escape because his skin was the wrong colour and he would have been caught. But amazingly, he did manage to escape in spite of being ostracised by many of the other officers in Colditz. So, so what proportion of people did actually escape and what kind of bravery was needed to achieve that? Well, it's actually a much smaller proportion than you would think. I mean, although it, it was very difficult to get out of Colditz, but it was much harder to get out of Germany. In order to get out of Germany, and the nearest border was 400 miles away, you had to have disguises, you had to have false papers, you had to have money, you had to have maps, you had to have compasses. It was really difficult. So for every 10 people who managed actually to get outside the castle walls, really only one of those got away. And in the end, the numbers were very, very small that managed to make actual home runs. There was something like 30 in all over five years of its existence. And particularly towards the end of the, of the war, it took extraordinary bravery to do it because at the beginning, officers faced really only the danger of being captured and sent back to Colditz. The worst that was going to happen to them was that they would be locked up in solitary confinement. After Hitler passed the so-called commando order, which ordered German troops to execute without trial anybody found behind the lines in civilian clothes on, on suspicion of, of being spies. At that point, the calculation became far more sinister and inevitably, and rightly, in my view, the number of escapes dropped off very, very sharply. People realised, the men realised, it just wasn't worth the candle. You know, it was, the high likelihood was that you would be shot and put in an unmarked grave. So the number of people who, who try, were still trying to escape in, in 19, end of 1943, 1944, were really quite small. Uh, but those that did, it required a particular kind of guts. And a, in one case, at least, a certain sort of suicidal urge. Ben McIntyre on the untold stories of Colditz. Uh, Michael Clark, absolutely fascinating to hear from Ben in that chat that even in a prison camp, military rank had its role. Yes, it did. And uh, he's very right to point out that, um, uh, that things changed as the war went on. Um, because to begin with, you know, in 1942, there weren't that many prisoners. I mean, the, all the army that had been taken, uh, soldiers who had been mainly taken to Dunkirk, they made up most of the prisoners. But then as the war went on, it tended to be RAF uh, staff uh, and air crew. And by and large, it was it was navigators, engineers, gunners, air gunners, some sergeants, some officers, not many pilots, you know. 
because mm. most pilots went down with their aircraft, trying to hold the aircraft so the others could get out. So when you looked at the pattern of RAF uh, prisoners, they tended to be the gunners and those who were in aircraft that where they could get near to the escape hatches, flight engineers and pilots, not many of them in this prison camps. And things got much worse as the war went on because from being a, a, a relatively relaxed atmosphere in 1942-1943, as Germany came under pressure, as Ben points out, um, it became much crueler. The camps became more mm. crowded after the invasion of 1944 when there were more people to be captured and food began to run short. And the camps mm. then became subject to real, um, not quite starvation, but real food shortages. And, you know, the prisoners would always find their own, because they were so bored most of the time, and the tensions of being in the camp they'd find all their own little rituals and so on and one of them that always stuck in my mind whenever they had a, a cake or something like that from the red cross to divide say between eight men they all had to take it in turns to 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 do the the dividing with the knife they all had to yeah. be the cutter in turn and the principle was they'd cut the cake into eight slices and whoever cut it would have to have the last slice because that hmm. might be the smallest. And they'd look they, they'd look at whether the cake was being cut exactly correctly because they get, they get themselves in a terrible state about all of this sort of thing. So it did happen. And then, yeah. of course, there was a big difference between those who were anxious to escape, as Ben said. I mean, some of them were, uh, were, kind of made, were sort of neurotic um, and mm. desperate to escape, almost suicidal. A lot of the others didn't want to escape for all sorts of reasons. And they knew that any escape attempts, whether successful or not, yep. would make life harder for everybody else because the Red Cross passes would be stopped. There was always some punishment uh, meted out to the whole camp because mm. of an escape attempt. So a lot, there was a lot of, di of, of division between those who were desperate to escape and those who really just wanted to survive to the end of the war. Michael Clark, really good to speak to you. Thanks for your time. And my thanks to all of our guests this week. Uh, you can uh, listen to the programme again at bfbs.com slash sitrep or wherever you find your podcasts. We're back with another BFBS sitrep next Thursday. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>